Someone asked me if I'd lost my razor this morning, and I actually hadn't lost it. I knew right where it was. But it was old, and it was going to be a mess, so I thought it was safer not to use it. Um. <laughs> no, you don't know. You haven't shaved in 15 years. Uh, we are continuing this morning in our newly launched study of the book of Acts, picking up at verse 12, chapter 1, continuing through to verse 26, the same chapter. Uh, our working hypothesis, and I say hypothesis simply because uh, as we work our way through, I don't know about you, but as I work my way through a book of the Bible, I, I get an idea of what I think it's about, but then as I go further along, sometimes I want to make adjustments to that, and and uh, so, but our working hypothesis here is that the book of Acts, in the main, can be described in this way. It is the continuing account of the ministry of Jesus. The author of Acts, Luke, the physician, in the first volume of his two-volume work, the Gospel of Luke, he records Jesus' earthly ministry, which he carried out in person. In his second volume, which is the book of Acts, Luke records what can be called the continuing heavenly-based ministry of Jesus. As it's carried out through the apostles and disciples, whom he is equipped to do so through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, and all of that being done with uh, Jesus overseeing this whole thing from his position of authority and intercession at the right hand of God the Father. Now, so far we've seen uh, the introduction to this book, verses 1 to 5, where Luke explicitly ties what he is about to write in the book of Acts to what he's previously written in the gospel. And then we looked at verses 6 to 11 and and this question that the apostles uh, posed about the kingdom of God and then Jesus' twofold answer to it. Which then leads us to the verses before us this morning, where Luke records for us how the apostles dealt with one last preparatory um, housekeeping sort of matter right before the Spirit came. And all of this having to do with this former apostle, Judas, his actions, which include his betrayal and his subsequent death. What Judas did sent uh, shockwaves through the fledgling Christian community, and it created problems for the remaining apostles. As uh, one guy named Peterson puts it, he says, the leadership status and the authority of the other apostles needed confirming after the betrayal of Judas. The apostles' leadership qualifications were in question because of their association with Judas. In short, some assurance was needed in the young Christian community. The ship needed to be steadied. And that, as several writers have noted, seemed to have been one of the primary purposes behind the events recorded in Acts 1, 15-26. And so it is that we see here uh, the Apostle Peter rising to that challenge to address this matter to show that in spite of everything that has happened, still Nothing has gone on except that which was part of God's plan and purpose the whole time. 
including the betrayal of Judas and the need consequently to replace him. And once this has been taken care of and addressed, the apostles will be ready, fully assembled, reconstituted, prayed up, praised up, and ready for whatever it is the Lord's about to do. With that as an introduction, before we go any further, please join with me uh, in praying for our time here. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, as we continue to fix our gaze upon you this morning, help us in this very moment to do so gladly and willingly. We thank you that you have not left us to our mere imaginations but have spoken very fully, revealing yourself to us, not exhaustively, but certainly sufficiently. And in doing this, you have shown us both what it is you're doing and have been doing for quite some time, and then how you intend for us to be a part of all that. So, help us then to read these accounts this history, not as uh, disinterested parties, but as invested participants in the very story we are reading. Father, whenever we sit beneath your word like this, occasions like this, it is not uncommon that we are plagued in our minds by distractions and worries and remembrances that clamor for our attention. Help us, please, to put those things aside or at least to quiet them for the moment so we can make the most of this time. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Now, the the main uh, freight message of this passage is found actually in verses 15 to 26 before we delve into this whole question. Of Judas and his replacement. I don't want you to miss verses 12 to 14 on the front end. In some ways, these verses really kind of go with what we looked at last week. Maybe a little more closely linked to that in some ways. But at any rate, they do have something important to say to us uh, and are a good lead into what we're going to look at this morning. So let me read to you now just those verses, 12 to 14, as they appear in your bulletin. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. After seeing Jesus uh, for the last time on earth, 11 of the original 12 apostles returned from the vicinity of Mount Olivet to the city of Jerusalem, uh, a distance of about a kilometer or so, which is what the Sabbath day's journey phrase amounts to. Upon arrival, they settled themselves into this upper room, and as Luke described it, this may or may not be the same upper room in which they had observed the Last Supper with Jesus during the Passover, but it was some sort of dwelling place large enough for all of them, them at this point meaning 
a subset of the larger group of 120 that's soon to be mentioned in verse 15. At any rate, this smaller contingent appears to be comprised of three groups. The 11, uh, a group referred to as the women, and then Jesus' surviving flesh and blood family, that is, his mother and brothers. Presumably his father Joseph has already passed away at this point. Regarding the women, we don't know for certain who these women were, but drawing from Luke's first volume, his gospel of chapter 8, there is a group of women described there consisting of Mary Magdalene, who had had seven demons cast out of her, uh, Joanna, who is the wife of Herod's household manager, and someone named Susanna. At least two of the women show up again at the end of Luke, at uh, Jesus' tomb. That's uh, Mary Magdalene and Joanna, along with some other women. So again, we don't know for sure it's reasonable that it could be these same women, especially since he doesn't name them, which typically he will do. Along with them are some members of Jesus' family, namely his mother, Mary, and his brothers, who are most likely siblings born to Mary and Joseph in a non-miraculous fashion after the time of Jesus' birth. These brothers are named for us. Uh, Maybe uh, this is new information to you. They're actually named for us in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. What's interesting and encouraging about their presence on this occasion is that these brothers initially did not believe in Jesus. Mark 3 says that. John 7 tells us that. But now in Acts 1, we see them gathering in an upper room with the apostles and these faithful women to pray. And if you look further ahead in the New Testament, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, you'll see... Uh, in one and maybe two references there to these same brothers, as scholars have noted, chapters 9 and chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 9, verse 5 in particular, it's interesting because it seems to indicate pretty clearly that not only are his brothers now believers, but they're engaged in some kind of gospel ministry. And all of that is, of course, good news and evidence of the power of the gospel in the face of, of unbelief. But the main point to be seen is that, that they are there and they're praying together. Right? The 11 apostles, these faithful women, Jesus' surviving family, all of them are together praying. It's clearly a priority for them. They gather for that purpose. It's not an appendage. It's what they gather to do. It's a defining characteristic of the early church. And if you flip back to the end of Luke's first volume, his gospel, you find another characteristic of the early church community. It says this, Then he led them out, this is Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them, was carried up into heaven. So here's the ascension again. And they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. So in addition to gathering in an upper room for prayer, probably in evenings, during the the day they seem to have been continually, which doesn't mean 24 hours a day, mind you, but it does mean regularly, consistently, they're gathering in the temple to bless slash praise God. And so as one writer says, you, you see here very early on already at the beginning of Acts that the community of God's people is engaged in two fundamental practices, which to this very day, are still meant to define the Christian community, prayer and praise. 
If you want to know the history, the origins, the roots of who we are and what we do as a church, what happens here on Sunday mornings, you are actually looking at some of those roots right now in this passage. God's people have always been and always will be distinguished by their prayer and their praise. And the thing about both of these activities, especially here in the context of Luke Acts, is this. Uh, There's a sense in which they are both... um, counterintuitive. That is, they seem a little unlikely in the circumstance. Um, Jesus has just left, right? He's gone. He's seen him for the last time, which had to be, you know, at least a little sad for them. Uh, He's not coming back, and yet here they are described as filled with joy and praising God at the end of uh, Luke's gospel. And that seems on the surface crazy, but it isn't. Because it means this. If they can watch that happen, watch him leave, and then turn around and praise God and be filled with joy, what does it tell you? It tells you that they get it. It tells you that they're looking past the surface of that moment to the substance that's behind it, and they know this is not the end, it is the beginning. It's like the story of the centurion. Remember that story? Who's uh, there at Jesus' crucifixion? And who looks up at Jesus and he sees this beaten, bloodied, dying man who then breathes his last breath. And then, and then he says, truly, this man was the son of God. I mean, are you kidding me? This is the last thing you would expect to come out of his mouth, staring at a beaten, bloody dead man how do you look at a beaten bloody dead man and conclude truly this is the son of God you can't not on your own but you can if God has done a work in you he's given you eyes to see and ears to hear he's enabled you to look past the surface to the substance and you can look at that and you can say it's definitely not over And that's what's happening with God's people right here. In the earliest days of the church, they see the Lord leave them, and yet they feel joy. They engage in praise and worship, an act which, apart from the miracle of conversion, maybe makes no sense at all. But once we have come to know Him, it makes more sense than anything else we can imagine. And it's part of what demonstrates that we're His. And the same is true of their prayers that at one level at least are also a little counterintuitive. Jesus told them about all he's about to do in them and through them and for them. I mean, it's a lock. It's a certainty. It's a guarantee. And how do they respond? They come together to pray, to ask God to do what he has promised to do. To prepare their hearts for this coming reality to deliver on his word. It seems counterintuitive to pray for the thing that's already been promised to you. You're absolutely going to get this. But it isn't. And I'd tell you why this morning, but then I'd be stealing Woody's thunder. So uh, all of this actually is just an elaborate setup for Woody's adult Christian formation class starting next Sunday on prayer. There you go, Woody. He owes me big right now. So. Now, what he's actually going to do with that and other things with, uh, on the subject of prayer, I really am going to leave that uh, for him to handle 
with you together starting next Sunday morning. End of commercial. So after describing what happened amongst Jesus' followers in the wake of his departure, Luke then addresses this whole matter of Judas, his betrayal and death, and the need for his replacement. Picking up then with verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. A company of persons uh, was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in this ministry. And then this parenthetical comment Luke inserts. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Achildama, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us, so Peter picks back up, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. The lot fell to Matthias. and He was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, there's, there's more here than we can address. It's always the case, so we're just going to hit a few points. Firstly, Peter, being aware, I think, of the questions raised by Judas', Judas betrayal and death, being aware of the way that this might even have shaken some people's confidence in the whole apostolic thing, apostolic enterprise. He speaks up, starting out by saying that all of this that happened to Judas, all of this happened because... Scripture had to be fulfilled. All that's happened in fulfillment of Scripture. And what he actually means by that, we'll see in a moment. But the first thing to notice is what this all by itself is saying. Because this is Peter saying to his listeners, look, everything that has happened with Judas has happened according to God's plan. It's happened in accordance with these Scriptures that were written at least a thousand years before any of this took place. Peter's saying that what is going on is not some random intrusion into an otherwise orderly plan. It's part of the plan. There are no surprises here. There are no accidents here. Yes, Judas has been with us from the beginning and purposely so. He was completely on the team. He played a key role among us. That's part of the plan. And his betrayal, that's part of the plan too. And his subsequent death, part of the plan the need to replace him, yes, part of the plan too. That's key. It's one of the big themes I told you about in the introductory sermon. Acts is showing us the sovereign outworking of God's plans and purposes on the stage, the canvas of human history. And Peter's opening words signal that very thing. Now skipping verses 18 and 19 for the moment, we're going to come back to them. They're kind of an aside or a parenthetical statement. 
But skipping that, after saying what's happened with Judas was a fulfillment of Scripture, Peter then offers up two Scriptures as an illustration of what he means in verse 20. One quotation comes from Psalm 69, other from Psalm 109. Now, uh, just a word about a couple of these, about these psalms. Um, they're both written by David. And by quoting from the first one, at least, Psalm 69, as one writer shown, Peter is really just imitating uh, something he saw Jesus do and heard Jesus do. Um, Jesus himself has already quoted from this psalm in his own ministry, John chapter 15, verse 25. He's already applied it to himself in John 15. At any rate, in this particular psalm, David is portraying a situation in his own life, that is in David's life, where he is suffering unjustly at the hands of false companions. And near the end of the psalm, he prays for God to bring a particular judgment on his enemies, one of destruction and desolation. And that's the part that Peter is quoting here. What Peter is doing is this. He understood, as the Lord Jesus showed him in his own use of the psalm, but he understood that, as Peterson puts it, the things that were said of David looked forward to the time when they would ultimately be portrayed and fulfilled in the one to whom David himself pointed, his whole life pointed to. That is, to the Lord Jesus, who was, one of his names is what? The son of David, right? the greatest and ultimate descendant of David. So, by the same token, just as the things that were said of David foreshadowed truths about Jesus, so too were the things said of David's enemies in Psalm 69, a foreshadowing of the enemies of Jesus, which in this case, Peter is applying to the person of Judas. And so he looks at what David wrote in Psalm 69 about his enemies being brought to destruction and desolation by God, and he sees that as a prophetic statement about what God would one day do and actually has now done with Judas. Similar fashion, he looks at another psalm, 109, sees the same kind of thing going on. Where David again describes himself as the one who's under attack and he calls for God's judgment on his enemies. The judgment he calls for is actually multifaceted. There's a lot of things said, but the one aspect in particular that Peter picks up on in that statement is, is this part where it says... His days might be few, and another would take his office. Again, as Jesus is the ultimate David in this psalm, Peter sees Judas as the ultimate enemy. So again, Peter sees in these scriptures, both of these scriptures, Psalm 69, 109, this prophetic foreshadowing of both Judas' destruction and desolation and his replacement. That's what's going on. There's another reason, though, why Judas uh, needed to be replaced as an apostle. And this other reason is one that Peter, no doubt, would have been aware of, even though he doesn't mention it specifically. Probably because he would have felt the scripture references were enough. But at any rate, the other reason Judas' slot needed to be filled had to do with the nature of what Jesus was doing when he came. You see, Jesus' coming was ultimately in fulfillment of God's promises made to Abraham. We've talked about that a lot here. Namely, that God would bless Abraham and make him a great nation and create out of him a people that would, he would call by his own name. He would claim them for his own. God reiterated those promises. He gave them to Abraham. 
He reiterated those promises to Isaac. He reissued them again to Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons who became the heads of the tribes of Israel. And after 400 years of Egyptian slavery, they grew into this massive nation, maybe two and a half million people, roughly. And these 12 tribes figured prominently in the subsequent history of Israel, especially as they moved into the promised land. And so many, many years later, when Jesus came, and he's the eventual descendant through whom all these Abrahamic promises would be fully, finally, and forever realized, when he came, he very deliberately chose 12 apostles. Not 11, not 13, not 6. He chose 12 to be with him, and he did it because... That number was symbolic of the nation of Israel, and the tribes of Israel. And he would, by doing that, Jesus was signaling by that action that he had come to reconstitute and reform the Israel of God. And this shows that Jesus saw what he was doing as a continuation of what God had been doing all along. And as part of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and through him. And so now that God was about to finalize the establishment of his church through this outpouring of the Spirit, which is about to happen, they're right on the doorstep of that. It was important then that this symbolism of the new Israel be retained and that the church is not seen as some brand new thing, disconnected from God's plans and purposes, but again, as the continuation of what God has been doing all along. So for that reason as well, Judas needed to be replaced for this very moment. Now we'll say something briefly about that in a moment before we do, like how they went about doing that. Let's go back to this note, this parenthesis that uh, Luke inserts into the middle of Peter's speech, verses 18 to 19. Specifically, we're looking at uh, two things. This purchase of land, this field of blood that's mentioned, and Judas's subsequent death. The problem here is this. Luke's description, on the surface at least, seems to be giving us a different account of the land purchase and of how Judas actually died than the one we find in Matthew. Um, If you look at Matthew's gospel, you see that Judas, feeling terribly about what he'd done, maybe you remember this, read this, Judas uh, went back to the Jewish authorities, tried to return their money, the 30 pieces of silver they gave him, but at least initially they didn't accept it because it was blood money, it was tainted. They wanted nothing to do with it. So they don't accept it, Judas takes it, he throws it in the temple. The authorities later retrieve that money and they use it to buy a field that they then dedicate as a burial ground for foreigners, Matthew tells us. Sometime not long after that, Matthew tells us that Judas hung himself. Two questions are raised. Who purchased the field? The priests? Or, as Acts says, Judas? And how did Judas die? Did he hang himself? Matthew? Or did he fall headlong and his bowels burst open, as Luke describes it in Acts? Well, they might be read as conflicting accounts of the same events. 
but it's not necessary that they be read in that way. They could be, as many gospel passages are, complementary with different gospel writers focusing on different details of the same stories precisely because they're writing with different purposes. You see some of the same thing going on in the Old Testament in uh, Samuel and Chronicles. Um, One scholar named Peterson takes this view. He says, If we accept the historicity of both accounts and seek to reconcile them, Luke's more general statement can be understood in the light of Matthew's more detailed account. The chief priests actually purchased a field with the money that belonged to Judas, but in his name, as it were. It became known as the field of blood because it was purchased with blood money. So, regarding the field at least, again, the priests wanted to wash their hands of this whole affair, even though they really couldn't. Nevertheless, they tried by not keeping the money themselves, not taking it back, but by using it instead to acquire a field, but putting it in Judas' name. They don't want it tied to them. And you see, the deal is this. From the moment Judas agreed to conspire with them in this treason, in this uh, wickedness, this conspiracy, from the moment he did that, their actions were his and his were theirs from its beginning to the bitter end. And who knows? It's complete conjecture on my part, but it may well have been the case that when they were setting all this up, and Judas was naming his price, so to speak. He already had his eye on a piece of land. He was, after all, the money guy among the apostles. He had an interest in these kind of things. Perhaps he even told them about it. Told the priests about it. Indeed, that might be precisely how they came up with this figure of 30 pieces of silver. It was the cost of the land. And the irony of all this, if it's true, if it worked out that way, would be that... In the end, he got what he wanted, but not in the way he imagined it, and not for the purpose he intended, but instead for a more gruesome one. At any rate, Peterson offers a possible harmonization of these accounts. And then as for the manner of Judas' death, the same author is also helpful, I believe. He says, Luke's description of the gory end of Judas can be related to the tradition that he hanged himself if we imagine that his fall, as Luke describes it, was the sequel to his hanging, as Matthew describes it. In short, Peter is saying, Peterson is saying that both accounts are true as far as they go. Neither one excludes the other. Neither one includes all the details. There's another possibility, and that's this. There is now some discussion amongst Greek scholars over this phrase uh, in Luke, fell headlong. Uh, And the possibility that an alternative and even better translation of that phrase actually is swelling up. As a corpse might do in the heat, in the aftermath of a hanging, finally bursting open. I'm not trying to be gory, but the point uh, in concentrating on that aspect of Judas' death for Luke is so that the reader might not get so lost in feeling badly for Judas that he misses the very clear message of divine retribution that falls to Judas because of his betrayal, as one writer puts it. So returning to the passage, Peter addresses the community of believers in Jerusalem on the subject of Judas's betrayal and death and the necessity of his being replaced and how all of that was according to Scripture. And Luke then quickly describes, after this parenthesis, how the replacement was handled, namely through the casting of lots. 
which was similar to drawing straws, uh, what we might do today, which on the surface might seem to be utterly by chance, a somewhat random event uh, for us, it typically is, but that's not at all how they saw it, particularly on this occasion. For one thing, lot casting completely uh, is practiced in other places in the Old Testament, but it, what it does is this. Lot casting completely removes the human element, the possibility of politics and campaigning and rivalries being set up and favoritism. All of that is taken right out of the picture as the people recognizing the sovereign power of God over all things, including the casting of lots. They pray to God, asking him to guide the outcome. Proverbs 16.33, the ladies are studying this during the week. I don't know if they've gotten this far yet. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That was their view, perfectly sensible. So looking around at the candidates for serving as one of the twelve, namely those who were both witnesses of the resurrection, and that that is those who had met the resurrected Jesus, and those who were with Jesus from the very beginning, from his baptism to his ascension into heaven, looking around in that current group, they found two possible candidates, uh, Joe and Matt. The lot fell to Matt. He became one of the twelve with all the rights and privileges that went with that. And with that, chapter one closes. Now, that's a lot of information, I know, a lot of background, but the background is actually important. This is the story. This is Luke setting us up for the events that are going to take place once the Spirit comes. So it's valuable that we know these things, that we understand how it happened, how we got to that point, how the church got there. And I think Stott's summary uh, of this passage and the setup is very helpful. And I'll just conclude with that and read that to you. He says this. He says, the stage is now set for the day of Pentecost. Apostles have received Christ's commission. They've seen his ascension. The apostolic team is complete again, with the twelve, ready to be his chosen witnesses. Only one thing is missing, and it is the Spirit who's not yet come. The place left vacant by Judas has been filled by Matthias, but the place left vacant by Jesus has not yet been filled by the Spirit. So we leave Luke's first chapter of Acts, 120 waiting in Jerusalem, praising God, persevering in prayer, poised and ready to fulfill Christ's command just as soon as he has fulfilled his promise. That's where chapter 1 leaves us. We'll see what happens in chapter 2 next week. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you um, communicate not just information to us in your word, but yourself. You reveal yourself to us. Uh, We look through your word to the God who stands behind it like we would look through a mirror, uh, a window, and and see you, Father. And that's what we're meant to do. Uh, Help us then to see you in these scriptures, to see your hand working uh, through the events 
of human history through these events of the early days of the church to draw your people together, to establish them, to ready them. Father, even as we watch how that unfolded, um, would you be doing the same thing with us within our own hearts, drawing us together through prayer, through praise, giving us a real anticipation of what you are yet to do as you continue to carry out your plans and purposes and how you are going to use us through that same spirit to bring to completion what you started. Help us to see our place in what you're doing and to see you in the midst of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We will now take a minute just to uh, take up an offering. And um, these are uh, funds that we use to support the ministries of this church, as well as about 30 different ministries that this church supports um, in the U.S. And uh, I think.